Welcome to Netflix and Skill, where we go deep into our favorite movies and how they were made. Come join us. Hi, welcome to the second episode of Netflix and Skill. This is your co-host, Matt McGuinness, and I'm joined by the one and only Brandon Wade. Hi there, how's everybody doing? This is B. Wade. If only they could reply, maybe they can call in sometime. We could have... I like the sounds of that. Yeah, uh, a hotline. Hotline. Get some, you know, I used to do that on my old radio show back at uh, Chapman University. Voice over IP or the old ISDN phone line. <laughs> <laughs> we could get some pre-recorded call-ins and just go along with it like it's like it's live. Very retro. So um, we have these screenings here every Tuesday in the Boiler House. And you've been screening some pretty out there movies. And um, recently you chose The Fountain, which is uh, a great movie. Yeah, well, I remember being in there and kind of giving people a hint that it was Aronofsky. And one of the students goes, oh, you're going to show Black Swan. And I kind of said, no, you would think. But, um, you know, I, I think everything in his canon is is excellent. But um, for me, the fountain is where he really hit his stride and uh, defined himself, you know, as, as an auteur. And you've got that running theme from Requiem for a Dream and Pie. And he's just established himself that he can, you know, do many different genres and many different storytelling styles. It reminds me a bit of a musician where they do a first album that's really good, but it's just kind of rough in a good way, mm, like mm. Pi, and then yeah, he goes yeah. on to do something else that's kind of crazy, um, but then he just cuts this diamond of a movie. Yeah, and well then, said. Then it goes downhill maybe after there, no? I don't think it ever goes downhill with Aronofsky. Now, people will argue this. Um, I think I think he's, uh, you know, call him like a sinusoidal wave or something. I'm sure you appreciate that metaphor. He has, you know, highs and lows, and he does different styles of films. You know, his one of his most recent, Mother, is also highly controversial. But I thought he grasped for something, and he actually touched it, you know, Michelangelo style, mm-hmm. just the, the, the tip of his finger. I think he got it, man. And, you know, it's, it's deep. His, his work is always deep for me. It's really ambitious, um, and some people just don't like it when you read some of the reviews. You always have to take uh, Rotten Tomatoes with a pinch of salt. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, some people get it and others just don't. And that's fair enough. That's not for everyone. Um, some of the really great movies are quite divisive in that way and some of the best albums as well. Some people love them. Some people just, it's not for them. It's true. And I think Aronofsky strikes a balance where you said he does a lot of out there films, but he's I think he's just mainstream enough where he's getting a really good core audience um and i'm actually teaching a course called wildcat next year and we're striving to find that same level of experimental meeting a mainstream audience so how would you sum up the movie in a nutshell if you could maybe think of a it's it's kind of cross genre so that's that's maybe a tricky one um you have to use words like epic fantasy Mm. romance Mm. drama oh yeah spirituality maybe sci-fi as well totally i think i said it to you before we started the recording it's a film that makes death beautiful, if I could just you know put it in the most concise way possible, and also epic. It, it it compares and contrasts life and death through spirituality, some religious motifs, mm. and uh, it's just incredible the visuals that he gets. But again, I know we're going to get into this, but I think it's really the 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 sound and the score that is the the highlight of this film for me. Yeah, it's one of these movies that has. Um more of a musical approach it's not Mm. so abstract and we spoke a lot in the previous podcast about sort of the diegetic and what they do there here it's just a case of 
it just sounds very well scored and it's got this recurring motif. So yep. we'll, we'll get to that a bit a bit later on. But yeah, the movie itself, it forces you to face hard realities. Yeah. And it's it's uh, sort of beautiful if you can, it's about accepting the kind of hard Absolutely. hardness and it kind of, it demands that you do accept that. Otherwise you don't get the prize at the end, which is eternal life, apparently. Right, eternal life or... I suppose it could be argued the release from life into death, into another state of being. Again, spiritual uh, wormholes that we could go down here mm. um, based on your current philosophy on, on life and death. Well, we'll touch upon a couple of the um, philosophies that okay. I think the both of us might have in our minds as we watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll come to that and also we'll talk a bit about Aronofsky's personal investment in the story and why it was so profound and the fact that he added in the touches from his own life into oh, it brilliant yeah um that ties it in i think a bit to uh the last session with uh, eternal sunshine and kaufman you know taking it from real life it has to be a personal story otherwise it's yeah. not true is it yeah it makes a big difference for the writers out there so for those of you who haven't seen the movie i'm just going to try and explain it. it's it's a tough one um, there's these three worlds or three different parts to the story. And timeline is important as well. Timeline, very important. So maybe you can help me out here because mm. it's complex. You've got the past Mayan world, which is kind of full of chaos and war with mm -hmm. this conquistador called uh, Thomas, played by Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. and, and Christianity he, being the prime, the primary religion in that timeline. Yep. And he's struggling to stay alive, basically. Death is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the present day world, which is basically the emotional equivalent of the past world, but reframed in a context of a relationship. Right, and with science being the underlying uh, belief, you know, of the mm. characters, or at least of the main character, Hugh Jackman, mm. um, at that time period, yes. Yeah, where he's trying to save his wife, who's played by Rachel Weisz. Her character is called Izzy, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's the light or the bridge that guides that present world into the third, otherwise unreachable world, which is like a higher dimension, which is this kind of universal place in the future of reflection, maybe. Like the universe trying to understand itself and kind of finally reaching the state of enlightenment or immortality or a rebirth at the end. Um, so does that work for you? Is that a, a well, I, I love how you described that last one, and I, and I haven't heard it put that way. I think another, another way to look at it might be uh, representing that all time is happening simultaneously. That last world somehow feels timeless. It's kind of a nexus. And it's it's always used to point at moments in the past, like you said. Um, and again, just to point out the religion that I seem to see in that timeline is more of a Buddhist kind of approach. Right. So the stories, instead of running consecutively one, one after the other, they're kind of going concurrently at the same time. Yeah, I would think so. That's how I see it. But it's open to interpretation. And uh, these different worlds seem to be aware of each other and almost impacting each other like they're watching and taking cues from each other. Um, totally. And there's lots of, uh, and this is done also in, in the sort of cinematography as well. There's lots of shots of Hugh Jackman looking directly at the camera like, like he's trying to break a fourth wall. Yes. Um, kind of like this, if I do an impression yeah. <laughs> of looking like this. You guys can all see that, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I love, one of the shots I love in particular is when he's in the future world kind of meditating and Izzy appears and says let's go for a walk on the first snow and 
he turns to her in the present time, in, the, in let's say the middle world, and he's still bald, like kind of that monastic look. And then he goes back into the future world, and then she asks him again. We return to the present in the middle, and he's got his hair. Mm. And, you know, you, you might say, oh, that's kind of silly, but mm. it's a really good way, that clever way of letting you know that the worlds are transitioning over. And it, I don't think it feels too jarring, you know. It's, it's really subtle in a way that doesn't seem like a gag. It's kind of a mm. just a little touch that you can't miss, but at the same time, it doesn't derail the story. Are you talking about a match cut there? Like it is a match cut, and, it, yeah. and they do it again when he drops the book as well. When he wakes up from the from the past world, so there's a lot of match cuts. There's a lot of editing cues to talk about here. How they flow so seamlessly throughout the three timelines. Um, if anyone doesn't know what match cut is, I always think of that scene in Space Odyssey where the monkey uh, throws the bone, and the bone turns into a spaceship in midair as it's uh, rotating. And ironically, you're also talking about intellectual montage, which. Uh, was defined by Sergei Eisenstein, I believe, a famous Russian editor. There were five different types of montage. We won't go into all of them. Intellectual montage is actually the most kind of memorable and the most powerful. And it's when you see objects or shots combined that have an intellectual meaning, you know. So, I don't mean, we're going down into 2001, but when the bone flies up in the air and then you mm. match cut to a spaceship in the same place... The intellectual montage occurring there is that you connect to the first human tool with a very advanced futuristic human tool. And, yeah. you know, humans have the capacity to put that together, and it's a very clever way of editing. And that's what makes it the best match cut of all time. It's not just <laughs> I think, yeah, superficial, I think so. is it? It's, no. There's a reason for it. If you think it's, about it. It's you, very profound. I was trying to figure out the uh, significance of the nebula in the movie because, you know, I'm, uh, Ooh, I'm just yeah. kind of spacey, geeky person in that way. Uh-huh. Um, and the fact that they look at it, it's kind of linking the worlds together. Obviously, the future world, he's in he's in space, so yeah. he is that nebula in a way. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I love the fact that the movie taps into this kind of universal timelessness mm-hmm. um, from a human perspective, from our limited perspective on on you know the pale blue dot if you like yeah like um the tree of life does that as well mm-hmm. um which does it in a more simplified way you might say doesn't it? it it's it's more of a sort of slow paced way the tree of life well i would i would be cautious using the term simple just because that i'm still unraveling that film yeah true actually the fact that it does it in a, an apparently sort of straightforward way it's it's actually quite profound in its own right. It's just doing it in a different technique, if you like, but the result is the same. It's a sort of mind-blowing comparison of things from a huge grand perspective mm-hmm. and then contrasted to, you know, Brad Pitt's harsh parenthood and yeah. and all that. So it's a different approach, but there's something there between the two. That's so, an interesting comparison to draw. Yeah, I think I think they can be seen on parallels in that respect. So the fountain contrasts all this very heavy emotion that's going on um, in the movie with some kind of universal um, acceptance, um, maybe like a Zen state, or I was thinking of Taoism as well. Oh, wow, yeah. So um, Taoism being about sort of becoming one with the the strange rhythms of the universe, mm-hmm. wherever they mm-hmm. go, you kind of go along with it. Um, I think they call it the Wei or the Tao, yeah. where Zen is more about tapping into the uh, true nature of things, like a uh, selfless sort of discipline kind of a way. Mm. 
So I love how the characters in the movie look up at the nebula as if to sort of momentarily escape the fate that they've been dealt. It's it's a respite from that, and it, it happens quite close to the start of that story where you're still trying to work out what's going on, but it's a powerful moment. And you're referring to the nebula as the the same cluster that's referred to as Shibulba by the Mayans, is that correct? Yeah, I don't know too much about that. I don't um, either, but um, but that's also an interesting tie-in there of yet another culture and belief, religious belief. So far as I understood, that what their minds were referring to there was something darker. Um, I looked that up, and it, yeah, it just seems to be something like almost like some sort of horror story or a kind of nightmarish. Whereas um, the Orion Nebula is, you know, yeah. I would have thought it would have been perhaps a more creative link. I was trying to find whether or not the minds might have experienced some sort of a, a supernova effect. So if we look at the Orion Nebula now, we see it as it was back in the year 675 because of the time it takes the light to get to us. And I was trying to figure out whether or not that might have been a part of the story. I mean, I had to look, I didn't know that off off the top of my head, but I had to look it up because of the time it takes the light to to travel from there to here. But I I don't know, I was trying to look for the meaning there. Is that roughly the time period that the first interval takes place? Um. So at that time, the the Byzantine Empire was in decline. Um, Islam was growing. The Muslim Empire was growing out of the Arabian Peninsula and into uh, Persia. And um, funnily enough, that's what wiped out the Zoroastrian religion. Again, I don't know much about that, but <laughs> wow, some people are big into the Zoroastrian thing. Okay, and still it's still alive today, mm. although it's quite it's quite sort of small in terms of its following numbers. So there were huge shifts happening um, in the world back then. Mm. And um, the movie taps into that and evokes these memories. Um, also, nice little uh, fact, because um, 31st of October has now become International Dark Matter Day. And um, there is an event happening here, and I'm hoping to have an astrophysicist on the show in future. No way, so that's that so cool. Quite, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is also in town, apparently. Oh, my gosh. Um, Let's get so, him in. So just to kind of you know throw in a space fact, um, in Japan... In the year 675, on January the 5th, um, a platform for astronomers to observe the stars was constructed for the first time. It's a nice little kind of segue back into the movie there because they were sort of observing that nebula from from that cold scene where she's wearing um, no shoes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're really uh, going through a kind of a time machine there. I, lo- I love that. Um, I had never considered a lot of these things. And I think we had a very interesting guest at the screening who was from what? What was her, what degree was she from? It was something to do with astrophysics. Um, yeah. um, apologies for listening, and um, <laughs> but yeah, the, she was very interesting, and she had of, some really cool comments that we never would have thought about from a film, you know, sound background. Which is why you know it just goes to show that depending on who you are and what you're into and what you're doing in this world, you will have a completely different take. Um, and if if a movie is constructed really well, it will allow you to interpret your own self into its sort of message if you like it's not forcing anything it's not rigid it's very much open um if you choose to look into it you will find something for you that is different to other people and uh, you know everybody everybody watches movies for the most part too so it's we hope that this can be applicable to all and the comment that that really struck me was when she said oh i i I kind of wish you know i'm i think it was better that he you know that he found this uh cure for mankind rather than spending the time with his with his you know dying wife which is a hard pill to swallow i think for you know uh, some of us in the crowd that are more um emotional 
and sensitive and things mm. like that. But it was an interesting perspective, and you have to accept it. It's valid. Well, yeah. I mean, in a way, the movie was sort of about this struggle of what the hell does he do with the time that he's got while she's still around? Yeah. And that's yeah. quite hard because he's obviously trying to, in some ways, just keep living his life, but it's all under her vision or view. It, it kind of makes you think about how you live your own life. And I mean, I kind of commented to her, she's in the good company of, of many you know, famous philosophers and, and probably also astrophysicists and whatnot who, you know, spend to their dying day, you know, focusing on their work. And, and I think Hugh Jackman really embodied that kind of character. Um, but if you're the kind of person who really cherishes relationships in your life, like, you know, you never know when your time's going to come or when someone else's time is going to come. Mm. And so you just want to make sure you appreciate everyone. And I'm not trying to say that in a patronizing way. I just, uh, I just mean that I've certainly and probably many of you out there have uh, have lost someone that you love and you wish you, I don't know, had just told you you love them one more time or mm. you know, anything like that. So, so take the time now, call up your, your grandma or your nan, as she's called out here, and, and tell her you love her, you know? Perhaps it, it says something about sort of that male character where his way of showing love is to pour his resources and energy yeah. into something that he thinks will come up with some yeah. answer or, yeah. or, or a fix. And balancing that out with showing affection and giving her time as well, I thought that was an interesting part, aspect of the movie as well in, in terms of his inner battle between the two different worlds that he was in. Um, so let's just, we're already talking about the story, but let's go into it deeper. Yeah. Um, you can tell that a ton of thinking went into this movie. And again, it's very delicately done in such a way that you can take away your own meaning to some large extent. Aronofsky went through a lot of the experience of the main character apparently, and um, he traveled and did a huge amount of research on the mind culture as well. But he also looked into space travel, apparently. I don't know what exactly that entails, um, other than researching whether or not it's possible. Mm -hmm. um, maybe he was experimenting a bit while he was looking into it, who knows. And also somehow, it. he took the actors to open brain surgery so they could relate to those scenes as they were acting them out with the monkey. Oh my gosh. Um, that's pretty intense. Apparently, Hugh Jackman, um, he didn't like it very much. Um, <laughs> but maybe it made him um, act better in those scenes somehow. Uh, I mean, that's a that's an interesting approach, but it certainly makes it a bit more real. You know, one thing I love about Aronofsky is, is he's very uh, elegant in his storytelling. Mm. Like, he doesn't like graphic violence and, you know, imagery that's too... Uh, gratuitous and I really like that it's, it's he's very classy and tasteful so yeah you know everything seems clean and surgical in the film I really I love that you know it's, it's, a, it's a treat to watch it doesn't gross you out I mean I'm sure open brain surgery of a human probably would be kind of gnarly I don't know if I could handle that yeah I think violence is always one of those gimmicks that you just end up being roped in with but if it's done carefully it can really add to the story. And the danger is of showing some of it too early in, in this movie with the minds running the gauntlet is, oh God, okay, this is going to be a pretty heavy watch. And yeah. it is, but not in the way that you think it's going to be. It does le set you up to think that. And actually, I had forgotten the film opens with that Mayan bit. And I was sitting around thinking like, I wonder what the students are thinking right now. Are they wondering if they have no clue? Are they thinking, oh, is this going to be a period piece, long, heavy-handed because it does start that way, but then it very quickly picks up, and mm. it's a brave it's a brave way to start the film. And as long as you make it past the first fifteen minutes, you're you're golden. And you know that's the kind of color 
palette mm. of the film. Well, so, it's no like that. Intended. Yeah, I mean, it's like that with many movies, isn't it? Just g- give it a go, get over the initial bias yeah. that you have. Yeah. And if a movie ends up confirming your initial bias, maybe it wasn't that deep in the first place. Right, and if it can't capture you in, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, I think you maybe don't have the most successful opening of a film, mm. you know? Apparently, Hugh Jackman spent a year, by the way, practicing yoga to get that lotus position where he's floating. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they filmed it underwater on a rotating rig to get, it, um, to get his clothes to kind of move in that way. Oh, that's cool. I love how he is just completely shaven clean. Like, yeah. It looks, it looks really interesting to see a character like that, you know, hairless, completely aerodynamic. Yeah, he's smooth. He's got a smooth head. <laughs> There's a Gillette uh, man right there. <laughs> um, yeah, good ad campaign. Oh, yeah. I was speaking to my colleague Diana, and um, she raised the interesting point that that was the only bit in the movie that she felt was um, unnecessary. The kind of the the floating in the orb. She f- kind of felt that that distracted from the story because it was so oh. uh, fantastical. I suppose. Ooh, yeah, it is. But it's it's such a cool liberty to take when you're you know when, you know it's a gutsy move um arguably it's it's gutsy to to have this timeline you know from conquistador era or whatever but i love it because it 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 so clearly uh separates you know almost like a neapolitan ice cream like the three timelines and that one just it you know so aronofsky wanted it to be timeless and and i'm sure we'll touch on this in the cinematography aspect of the film but the fact that he was using microscopic imagery for the backdrops rather than CGI, um, I think is just such a cool move. Because if you think about it, in his present timeline, he's a doctor. He's looking under the microscope. He's looking at different um, substances and how they react. And so it it actually isn't as fantastical as you may want to think. When I first saw the film, first time, I didn't know anything about the timelines. I just thought, I thought that was in his head. I thought it was kind of a Birdman thing where he's like zen in his own head and that's his safe space where he goes when he needs to think you're kind of suggesting there in an interesting way that he's in the present day he's kind of studying petri dishes and everything and in the future world he is himself inside that dish he is what he's studying he you know he becomes what he's looking into somehow i just got tingles that's i hadn't thought of that but that's very deep because he he has all those tattoos the rings around his arms which are like rings around a tree marking the years of his life marking all of the things he's learned and studied and now you're right he's looking introspective you know he's like the buddha who's who's very close to attaining nirvana yeah and actually he does kind of stay in a uh, a buddha state i mean it's not until he gets very frustrated with his predicament of being in limbo with her mm. that that breaks down and here's something i caught just on this, you know, you see something every new every time. Uh, he says something, uh, what is it? Well, he turns her down for the walk. But then, you, you know, you get to the end of the film and she's trying to convince him to come with her. And he, he finally says something like, okay, let's go. I'll try it. And, and that clicked for me on this viewing that it's, it's already happened, you know? So Aronofsky took inspiration from, you know, the Wachowskis in The Matrix, for instance, right? Mm. And the, then the Oracle always says, you've already made the choice, you just have to understand why you made it. Mm. And so Hugh Jackman's character, he already knows what the outcome's gonna be, but he's like, all right, let's go back and try it one more time, even though I know how it's gonna end. Mm. Because, you know, I think he just wants to cherish that time with her. And, 
and spend that that moment with her. So, and it's almost like he's breaking the cycle because, you know, if you believe time is locked, you know, in a certain extent, and he can never change anything about the past, so he's just gone a loop. He he keeps going through this cycle of experiencing her death and never overcoming it and spending every molecule and atom of his being in the future trying to eradicate death and find her and and find immortality as he does in the first timeline yet at the end of the film he finally decides you know what i'm gonna make a difference this time i'm gonna let her go or i'm gonna spend that moment with her and everything changes and he lets it go and you know the rest is history we're all dust in in the wind Mm -hmm. sorry that was that was a really big spiel i yeah no just got into something there no but i mean that's what it makes you think about so the walk that they go on is a literal manifestation of this journey ahead of them and it takes him a long time to realize that he has to go with her again if you like the walk is very significant very symbolic because he didn't want to accept it before he didn't want to go on that walk so just going back to the script in 2002 the movie had a 70 million dollar budget yeah and it starred brad pitt and kate blanchett apparently it was actually 75 million oh 75 million okay um, but he pulled out seven weeks before shooting because they ignored his demands to change the screenplay for some reason. Major creative differences, yeah. Okay. So they had to fire the entire Australian crew and get rid of all the props that they had, including a huge Mayan temple um, that was built like 10 stories high, and the whole thing was basically cancelled. Yeah, they were planning on doing some major war scenes, which, again, I don't think the film is any less for not having those. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you think that um, if they hadn't have had to slim down the the budget and everything, would the movie be as good? Well, I'm glad you ask, and I'll and I'll respond also that I don't think Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett would have been the right choice anyway. This would have been an entirely different movie. No disrespect to them, um, you know, I love I love those actors in other roles, but something you know sometimes something needs to happen to give another actor a chance to really shine. Uh, you know, I think a similar thing happened in The Matrix. It was going to be Will Smith, and it didn't work out, and then... What, really? Yeah. Ne- yeah, Neo was going to be played by Will Smith. It would have been iRobot, you know, too, or I don't know if that was before or after. I'm, I'm mixing up my facts. But um, anyway, so, and then actually, similarly, so you get someone like Keanu Reeves come on, and a guy like Keanu Reeves, who's, who's a great guy, by the way, works at a reduced rate to get the CGI as best it can be to really sell the whole thing yeah now you bring in you bring in um hugh jackman and rachel whites i believe is how you say her name and they both vice right i don't know they both are (laughs) they both work for reduced rates so we're, we're seeing this motif of like lower maintenance actors accepting a lower pay so that the film can be better and to me that's like really mm, it just it's beautiful and it shines through in the film and so yeah, they slimmed it down to a budget of about $35 million, and that's that's the version you see, but it's stripped away, and it's simpler, and it's cleaner, and it's more intimate. You know, I don't want that film to be uh, uh, an epic, you know, kind of, uh, wasn't there a film? Oh, you're thinking of Apocalypse. <laughs> Apocalypto, Apocalypto, whatever. I, I don't, you know, that's not what I was looking for oh, out, of, out of that film. Different movie. Exactly, exactly. Um, to wrap up the story section... Um, just want to talk about the symbolism because the movie is seeped in religious and otherwise symbolism. Mm-hmm. So you've got this tree, which is the center of the space world in the future, mm-hmm. and it's in the present story. Um, he's using biological samples from the tree 
to try and cure cancer, but it ends up giving him this completely different gift of eternal life, um, even though he wasn't even looking for it because he was too upset to to recognize its value. Right. Um, and he just continues fighting his own battle in his head rather than recognizing what he's achieved. Um, the book that she leaves him to finish kind of feels a bit like a tr- part of a tree because it's 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 kind of it looks like a tree. It, I don't think it has a tree on it, but it's it sort of feels to it's me made from a tree. It's made from. <laughs> it feels to me. It's, it looks like it's somehow earthly or something. Yeah, it's a very organic looking book. I love it. It's great production design. Even whoever wrote that too, it's, it looks like Lord of the Rings writing. I love it. But, and he, of course, needs time to link the clues in his mind and the character. And he's going through so much. So the tree is really significant. Um, I can't think of when else it appears in the present day world, but in the Mayan world, um, it appears, but only after he fully accepts his own fate and stops fighting in that world and just accepts. Yeah. Um, in the space world, he exists alongside the tree, but he eventually starts feeding off of it, um, and that's really important symbolically because the tree eventually dies, yep. and that destroys him in a way. But then he accepts it with her help again, and that's when the star goes supernova, and he reaches this kind of nirvana state like yep. in Buddhism. And uh, finally, he accepts this seed of the tree that she gives him and he plants it on a grave in the present world and it kind of loops the circle mm-hmm. around so it ties up the notion of the circle of life and a couple of things that you so you did catch there, there's your tree in the present timeline he plants it over her grave but also don't forget the the extract which they use on the uh, the monkey test subject is from derived from a tree bark i believe from something in the Amazon or some something. So probably, potentially, they're pointing that that could be the tree from long ago, the, um, the tree of life or the tree of, uh, of everlasting. Yeah, so he's, yeah, he's using the sample um, from the tree to sort of bioengineer the solution. So yeah. the tree is sort of carried through. It's woven throughout. Yeah. yeah. And the whole thing is rooted, uh, to use the point of the tree, in religion and philosophy. Obviously, in Buddhism, you've got this attaining nirvana state that I think he gets at near the end. And then it's almost like the death of the ego um, or oh, yeah. the, the psychic death in Jungian psychology. Nice. Um, the and death of the id. Yeah, all that stuff, which is a big part of a lot of modern psychology as well. Um, and maybe even the death of God in uh, Nietzsche's writings as well. I don't know mm. if it tries to allude to to Nietzsche could be a, many of those things yeah is he playing God that's what I was wondering at one stage he well he's very much Hugh Jackman is trying to play God and trying to avert death and he's the perfect caricature of somebody who you know I love it when he says you know we're trying to cure death it's a disease I mean that's that's a man who's <laughs> at the end of his rope so it manages to touch upon all these huge topics and makes you think of all this web of amazing philosophy and information mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. humankind has essentially developed since we've been around. Yeah. And how ambitious is that for a movie? It's just incredible. Oh man. That's that's why this is uh one that I just couldn't wait to show and I could talk about this for hours, you know, we could be in here for a while. That's probably one of the heavier sections to discuss with that movie because mm-hmm. it there's no way around it it really is um it, it's it's like a maze it's like a rubik's cube that you have to solve or some puzzle that you have to work out for yourself it's yes. a very powerful it's like a gift it's like you as the viewer are handed the book and you as the viewer 
complete the end of it. You know, it's blank pages and you have to write the ending in your own head. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very, it's very ambitious in that regard. And it's very respectful to the audience in that regard. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, I'm thinking of a video game that kind of lets you interact with it in some way, or it doesn't try and force you to watch too many cutscenes. It just lets you kind of interact somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just really quick before we move on, there's one key thing that you, just to make a full circle, yeah. you had mentioned, you know, that Aronofsky pours a lot of himself into the story. I don't know. I don't know if you mentioned this yet, but um, in 1999, when he started on the story, he he just turned 30, so just about around our age, and this is really sad. His parents were diagnosed with cancer. And so being confronted with, uh, you know, human mortality, this is a quote from him. He says, that was a really heavy duty emotional time. Turning 30 marks when your twenties are over and you could start considering one of these days I'm actually going to die. Um, so yeah, his, luckily his parents overcame cancer and, um, he began to focus on the concept of, uh, you know, a young man saving his loved one from life-threatening disease. Yeah, it's his own interpretation of how to deal with it, I suppose. And, you know, it's a very serious topic and we've all been affected by it personally. So, um, yeah, there's there's a sensitivity there to it that he navigates through in his own way. And, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really powerful, I think. Yeah, That's, this is stuff from IMDb Trivia as well. If anyone's interested, there's loads of stuff on there. So the aesthetic of the movie, um, we mentioned about the match cuts already. Um, but I think it's a movie of sort of recurring motifs um, and that, mm. that is a big on the sound side as well but we'll get to that later on um, so there's limited colours in the movies there's a lot of gold and whites mm-hmm. um, kind of gives it a certain look and it gives it a kind of feel and the thing is someone mentioned it at the screening when the green appears from his body you really feel that mm. like it's it's so Very earthly vibrant, yeah. yeah it's almost so saturated you're really hungry for that color. It's it's amazing. I've I've never <laughs> felt that way about a color in a movie before. But it's true, isn't it? You're deprived yeah. of an earthly color, yeah. and you're kind of removed from mm. life. And then he brings this life in, and it's it's like an epiphany. Mm. You really mm. feel it. Like it's you don't have to be someone who's particularly interested in color to to just feel that green so profoundly. Mm-hmm. So um, you can almost touch those flowers. It's tactile. It's tactile and it's also quite almost psychedelic because he puts a little bit of the sap from the tree of life on his wound and it instantly heals him. And then, you know, kind of like a greedy drug addict, he goes and just consumes as much as he possibly can. It kills him. And yeah, but it kills him. Yeah. But by by turning him into this timeless life essence of nature, right? It's weird. Yeah, it transforms him, it like transcends him into a different state. And you could argue that he's not dead He's just interacting as plants do. You know, they're all living things. Mm. We don't know if they're sentient or not. But for instance, this is probably not something that should be on the webcast, but, you know, mushrooms have a mycelium network underneath the ground and they are interacting with one another. So he could be somehow tapping into uh, nature and, and experiencing an existence which is no longer singular. Absolutely. Um, just made me think of Paul Stamets, who is the mycelial guy, and he's done lots right of on. podcasts. He's a great guy, and he's also a character in the latest uh, Star Trek, which is really entertaining. Whoa. Really good show, that is. Um, yeah, so it kind of reminds you of Pi. The, is it the first Tarnovsky movie, Pi? It's his first major, I think it's his first feature. It's his first, you know, major production. The fact that you're deprived of color and then oh, it yeah. explodes. And he doesn't really do that in Pi, so far as I recall. There's no epiphany scene where he's in the fountain. He realizes that he's 
got a tool in his arsenal that he didn't have before by depriving you of colours, mm. he's going to mm. give you this contrast. So you really feel this explosion of, of colour. But also, in addition to colour, he does a lot with shapes. Yes. He throws some shapes around. In each timeline, right? Yep. So in the past, you've got these, um, you know, these kind of hard edges, corners, triangles in the past. Mm-hmm. And he uses um, daggers, mm-hmm. uh, temples, and even constellations. So he uses Orion's belt, which is a very famous kind of... Uh, equilateral triangle to to reinforce these shapes um and in the present it's all kind of rectangles it's like windows and frames um and again there's some overhead cuts between the two worlds and the sort of triangles almost turn into rectangles and the shapes are kind of almost rounding out and then obviously in the in the future it's the circle everything's rounded off and um stellar if you like like planetary it's you know it kind of goes to the bigger picture and it's resolved cool so um and don't forget the central world the present where he's where it's squares right everything's very much like a medical clinical boxed in uh, limitations you know he, he's striving but he can't break out of it yeah well I'm, I'm just thinking as you're saying that that what you're getting at he's He's trying to kind of like engineer the triangles into circles, like oh, metaphorically. Oh, put it, put the square peg in the circular hole or whatever. Like metaphorically, like yeah, yeah. yeah so that's a cool thing. Maybe, and that's all subliminal. Your 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 head is taking yeah. all this stuff in. You're not necessarily sat there thinking, "Ooh, triangles," because you're absorbing everything that there is to be absorbed, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. But that's really clever. It's subliminal, and at the end, you kind of, oh yeah, you know, circles and all, and it kind of makes sense. And I think this is a great film to pick apart because it's just on the level where, you know, it's almost like you could explain this to a child, you know, three simple shapes, but somehow very different meanings, you know, I think we just described them, so I'm not going to repeat it, but, Mm. but they each really work well in each timeline based on the tone and the feeling for what the character is kind of experiencing. Yeah. And I have to say, on the topic of the cinematography, there's one scene that I just feel is, wow, this is amazing. And, it, you know, I was going to use the word indulgent, but it works. So it's not indulgent because okay. it, it adds up. Um, the scene where he's doing the Tai Chi um, with the star backdrop, I think is just stunning and I love it. Absolutely. It's uh, it's fairly simple to pull off, but it's so appropriate at the time. And I think there's just a lone violin playing and and it's just, yeah, it's so astral and... Um, I don't know. It it kind of just gets you into that Zen space, doesn't it? It's not just put in there again for no reason. It's it's to show you that he really is in a higher level, and you feel it. That's the one part where you really feel what he's feeling in that higher level state. And for those cinematographers listening in that are students, you can achieve that. Um, ask your local cinematographer how. But um, but the point is, a shot like that in a short film could really raise it up you know raise the bar yeah those kind of things stylistic shots are incredibly powerful especially in short pieces of work because they they transport the audience to another dimension yeah and i think sometimes you know there's just a shortage of just artistic scenes at the end of the day these things are meant to make you feel Mm -hmm. so you know your audience is hungry for this artistic abstract journey sometimes and they also serve as really good transition points for editors and sound designers to kind of let you you know breathe for a moment before you go into the next kind of dialogue scene yeah it's a pacing thing as well so it really helps 
Uh, you mentioned it earlier about the the kind of micro, and you mentioned about the contrast with the macro as well. Hmm. Um, they even take this micro approach to a supernova, which is, I think, quite smart because they're not trying to show it from a kind of distance. They're they're showing you up close, and they're trying to show you what nirvana looks like. I think this sort of Buddhist state of nirvana, without going too abstract, but just showing it with a rush of light and energy, um, which I think is really effective. And like I mentioned before, the scenes where he's sort of in this lotus position, mm-hmm. I can see what people mean when they say that maybe showing him kind of floating, because they already have this beautiful Tai Chi scene. I don't know if you need to have him floating, like if, if that distracts you from the story itself. Personally, I thought it was okay, but I can see why the lotus scenes are slightly maybe too much I think it depends on your view on the viewer to me I don't know it 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 makes it transcend just a guy who thinks of himself as being enlightened and it really it almost makes me vicariously feel like I could get there one day you know it's 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 a visual metaphor um and it I love it. I, I love the way it feels. I love the, the the costume. I love the tree and the production design. I love the little tools he's using mm. and that scene to just show him making the ink. And you see it happen in Noah, in his film Noah later again too. He's, he loves these little mosses and, and different organic uh, byproducts and they're, they're so satisfying to me. Mm. And it's almost like harkening back to like a celluloid thing whereby the the props and the objects used in the film are so unique that nothing really feels like you could find it in the real world. So I would I would argue that those those moments are essential when he's in that space and I think it does it so much better than other films. I mentioned Birdman earlier. I don't like that film actually, but you know, there's one where the guy's floating up yeah. in the lotus position and it doesn't do it for me cuz there's no there's no context to it. Yeah, agreed. Um great score. Um, Antonio Sanchez, one of the best drummers in the world. But apart from that, yeah, I totally agree. And it's, I think it's important as well that you need to see him meditating because, like you say, I love all the detail. He's focusing on the moss and small things, hair and breathing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's the detail of his life. Yes, You see him practicing Tai Chi, but you also need to see him meditating. You need to see his philosophy. You need to see his inner working. Yeah. So I suppose what I'm saying is, is there another way to show him in that state? Possibly. But that's that's what he went for. And you know, you can say that it works or it doesn't, but they're conveying a sense of him being in an internal space. And one last thing to say, this is for all those aspiring directors, innovators, creators out there. Aronofsky is one of those filmmakers who has such a clear and distinct vision. And I I admire him and I, I, I envy him, I guess. I envy him as a creator because he seems to know so clearly the world he wants to portray. And that's why I said he feels almost like a modern-day Kubrick to me, um, mm. you know, with, with a slightly different disposition, but still having that very clairvoyant vision. And he, the worlds that Aronofsky creates, everything seems in its right place. You know, it's like the Radiohead song or whatever. It just, it just feels right. Love that song, yeah. Yeah. Um, on that subject of himself and the DP, the Libertique, Matthew Libertique, mm-hmm. On the topic of the, them cutting the budget, I thought I could read out a quote from Libertique Please that do. just sums up how they achieved such an amazing result on a, on a lower budget. Cool. He says, visual effects comprised a lot of the original budget in the original conception. 
The big popcorn moments, I presume he means massive CG stuff, mm-hmm. were in there to justify the budget and to bring target audiences into the mm-hmm. theatre. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to it being this amazing piece of art that Story they wanted driven, to... Story-driven, yeah. Yeah, so they just put that stuff in there to justify the budget. Wow. And to, so interesting to know that. Yeah, to get the bums on the cinema seats. <laughs> um, and then he says, ultimately, I think the streamlining of the film helped us tell the story more effectively. It's been stripped down to the core, to yep. what it's really about, yep. a search for immortality when the truth of life is mortality. Hmm. I think at the end of the day, the theme of the film will be easier to feel on the lower budget, he said. I agree. I completely agree. And that's and very illuminating. It says a lot, I think, about a lot of huge budget movies, especially sequels. They just get buried in, in, in layers of different production houses and studios, justifying the budgets that they're dealing with and the amount they're charging their client at the end of the day. VFX is a very exciting new territory, CGI, all that stuff. But again, it's turning into a bit of a fest now with you know superhero movies and Transformer movies and, and you name it. And... It, you know, there's a lot of directors out there and filmmakers that are quite appalled by it. And, you know, they're all artistic tools that should be used to serve the story. So this is a perfect example. You know, you ended up getting such an artistic film. It might not rank high at the box offices, but at the end of the day, it's so much better for it. Yeah. And in terms of the sort of movies that we like enjoying between the two of us, yeah, you know, these are at the much higher end of that scale, you know? I totally. A lot of my favorite movies are quite small budget. My favorite one being a 3,000 euro budget. So for us, these are big budget movies, but now in comparison, it's just gone off the chart. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the sound. And Great. We covered a lot of sound in the last episode, so we'll kind of skim it more lightly this time. Oh, you can't skim on the, on the sound. <laughs> let's focus on the score then. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the musicality of it rather than the physiology of it or the kind of editorial decision-making process behind it. Okay. Keeping it quite simple, I think you could say about this movie that the way that it's scored is very important and unique to this movie in a way that you might not have in other movies. It's not just a film score. It's it's scored very delicately um, and the music is the thread that sews together the different worlds and it does that by having different instrumentation and different recurring motifs in the three different timelines. Hmm. Let's face it, this movie is kind of complex initially. But the sound actually provides the compass to get through it. And it gives you subtle cues of when things are going to happen. For example, mm. the percussion is a, a really big part of it. And in the Mayan scenes, he uses these uh, Japanese taiko drums. You know, the war drums. You hear that drum and you know that it's a war going to happen. Yeah. Um, so he uses a lot of more traditional instrumentation in the Mayan scenes. Mm. Stuff that conjures up... Uh, the past, basically. And then when it cuts to the present day, then we get Mogwai, we get guitars, we get sounds of the present day. And in the future, um, we get cool, ambient, spacey electronica, which is my thing, you know? Yeah. So the soundtrack is very important in terms of defining, kind of like separating the three different worlds. And otherwise they might just blend together in a way that is more confusing. And that's really important. Even in the trailer for the movie, if you look at the trailer, oh yeah, the sound is very clearly different in the three parts of the trailer. And the trailer actually shows the three sections very clearly against each other. Yes. And I had never, sorry to cut you off, but I had never seen the trailer, that trailer in the past. And when I, I rewatched it talking about the three timelines. I was kind of like, 
have they rebranded this or try to remarket it? Because yeah. I never remember being positioned and having it framed that way when I first went into the movie theater to watch it. I bet someone quite smart probably saw the movie and recommended that the trailer be very much straightforward. Yeah, trailers are very, very different oftentimes than the actual film, what, what the film is about, kind of. It's a great trailer, but the trailer almost suggests that the movie is going to be told, first of all, entirely in the past, entirely in the present, then entirely in the future. Exactly. Thankfully, it's not quite that. I mean, I'm sure they could have done that that way, maybe, but it wouldn't have been as good. It's weird how they position it, but but trailer making trailers are a whole other art of their own, and we probably don't have the time to get into that on this podcast. Yeah, but just in terms of the sound, I mean, really all I wanted to say about this was the importance of recurring motifs. Yeah. It's really important, and they have... um, Clint Mansell and the Kronos Quartet. Oh, yeah. Um, I think they're based out of San Francisco. And the the strings and the repeated themes in terms of the sound, that really helps ground you and help you understand it's the key to the movie in many ways because mm-hmm. when you hear sounds in your head, you immediately draw a kind of link to when you last heard that sound. Mm-hmm. And they take advantage of that in quite a clever way in that when you hear a sound in one scene and then you hear it later on, immediately in your mind that helps you link together the scenes in again it's a subconscious way yeah and you can do that with sound if you don't do it in a very obvious way you can be subtle about it and it's just kind of like memory linking because again similar to eternal sunshine it's a movie that deals with in a way different memories and linking together very sort of abstract different scenes and sound is really the way that you're able to find your own way through to understanding the core of the movie the key to the movie. Um, I don't know what you thought about that. That's very well said. Um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, I this is one of the soundtracks or scores that I listen to, you know, all the time, you know, just on its own. But after a while, when you're just listening to the score without the film, there'll be a point where, you know, I'm like, oh, it's been great. It's been a good journey. But sometimes I've listened to it for, you know, two or three hours and I've said, okay, it's getting a bit repetitive. But that never happens in the film, even though it is, you could arguably say, oh, there's repeating, repetitive, uh, you know, themes. It's done with the film to service, like you said, the story and to kind of clue the audience in. Yep, we're going back in this direction now. Yep, we're transitioning into this time frame. Yep. And so it's so, it's, you know, I talk about in my editing class, synergizing with your sound designer and your composer, and that is just a magnum opus of a film for that. I mean, the way that Mansell just drives the film, it never once feels out of place. It never once feels like he's stepping into the director's seat. But to be honest, he kind of is, you know, in a way he he's... He's dictating what you're going to feel on this roller coaster ride of, a, of an experience. And he just takes you through the highs and the lows. And then at one point you go into a dark tunnel and you don't know if you're going to see the light. And then all of a sudden it just blasts and you're just hit with euphoria and enlightenment. And that is just the quintessential moment of, of the score, uh, which, we, which we had the film crash during the screening right before that moment. You know, and it was just such an epic climax building, the crescendo, and then we we had to kind of artificially restart that. But I guess that's like life, right? Anticlimax. The last thing I'll say is life life is full of anticlimaxes. However, I said this to the students, like as filmmakers, we have the technical capability 
to get the films as close to perfect as we can yeah. and to create that experience it, it is like surgery it is like it's like almost like a computer engineering you want to send the electrical currents down a certain path of wiring and you mm. want them the audience to arrive at just the right moment ready to feel what you're about to share with them and then you can give them a glimpse of nirvana a glimpse of a feeling an emotion a sensation but it's only brief you know you can't mm. exist in that space forever and then it it passes it's just like life but it's beautiful and it was so well captured in that moment I think it speaks a lot to where Aronofsky has come from. That he's he gets it. He's coming from a place of you know technical understanding where he knows how to create certain sensations. But he's come from a cult classic of Pi, and he's he knows what he's doing inside out. And um, he's not trying to do something outside of his own area of expertise. He's got this. He's he's led up to this. He deserves to indulge us into this journey that he goes on. Exactly. And unlike a director like, let's just say, Christopher Nolan, who who has some awesome films. I've never seen Aronofsky get too big for his bridges. And, yeah. you know, a, somehow, rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to top myself with every film I do, he just, again, sinusoidal wave. He just says, oh, now I'm going to do a biopic of a wrestler, and it's going to, it's not meant to be some epic, you know, massive thing. It's meant to be this little portrait, uh, you know, documentary style thing. Yeah. And he and he just does, he does really cool things. I love every film he's done. So he's clearly driven by what he thinks is good, not by doing something bigger and a bigger increase and a bigger box office. And you know, yeah, exactly. He you know he he he's very tasteful and he's following his heart, if you will. You know, if we could say it that way. Yeah, he's definitely got other than the money. <laughs> he's definitely got a good compass, and he he yeah. knows why he's doing it. Again, I said earlier, I'm kind of envious of him. Because for a lot of us, it can be hard to find inspiration. Like, what is our message? What is our voice? And you just got to keep digging and, you know, plowing away until some, you strike something and it, and it mm. hits home and then go with it. Okay, Brandon, it's time for the six degrees of separation of yes, the fountain. My favorite part. Six degrees of separation. Okay, so I'll start us off. All right, uh, kick things off. Uh, Darren Aronofsky directed The Fountain. Very good, very good. Well, since we're kind of obsessed with this auteur, Aronofsky, I'll just point everyone to his first film. He also directed Pi, which is a really interesting black and white uh, project as well. It's very much a kind of student cult movie, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, um third degree i'll say matthew libatique um was the dp for pi as well oh come on that's kind of cheating mad i mean libatique does all of aronofsky's uh, films but okay this okay. might be a short game that we play this all time. all right all right um well libatique also directed black swan which we had some uh, requests for as well another beautifully composed film with a lot of blacks and whites yeah in the name eh yeah um, oh god, okay. Well, this wasn't the most adventurous six degrees of separation, but let's just say Darnonovsky directed Black Swan, and that <laughs> completes the circle. <laughs> oh, we gotta work on these six degrees, man. Six degrees of separation. Yeah, um, maybe next time. Yeah, we could have just thrown in Natalie Portman in there. I was gonna just say that. She's in Noah, right? Uh, no, no, that's Emma Watson. Uh, yeah, but he we could hasn't... have got six by just throwing her in there, but it doesn't matter. No, but has he done... Has, does he ever re- repeat work with actors? Um, he usually gets new actors for every film. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if they've done anything else together. To be honest, no. Darren Aronofsky was married to Rachel Weitz at the time of filming, and it was actually Hugh Jackman who suggested that they film. You know that that he cast her as as the 
as the woman, mm. which has got to be, you know, a little awkward. I mean, testament to Aronofsky for, you know, witnessing your wife with Hugh Jackman in the tub and Wolverine in the tub. Yeah. I mean, all those moments, but again, like, you know, he's a total professional and you totally believe the, the relationship and the love and the affection. Uh, needless to say, they're no longer married, but I guess that's showbiz for you. He's a great guy, by the way. I met him once at Carriage's no. Hotel. I put a mic on him. And, no. Uh, yeah, I put a mic on his hairy chest. Oh, wait, on uh, Hugh Jackman? Yeah, yeah. Nice oh, guy. Oh, I'm so super, jealous. Super nice guy. And Julian Anderson the same day. She's great as well. What was this for? Uh, the, the Fall is great, if you've ever seen The Fall. The Fall is brilliant. Yeah. We're, we might show that in a Netflix and Skills session. Oh, this was a, It was a press junket. Okay. But yeah, back to The Fountain. I think it would be nice to end the show yeah. um, actually on a universal note. Okay. Um, in the spirit of Dark Matter Day, um, which is now going to happen on October 31st every year for those space nerds. Cool. Um, I'd like to end this show with a little story that mirrors the story of The Fountain because it's okay. a super ambitious movie. Yeah. And I'm trying to do it justice somehow. You've done a very good job of explaining everything in the movie. Uh, 50 years ago, two radio astronomers called Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson made an accidental discovery that changed the world um, as we know it. But they were actually looking for something else when they found this discovery. A bit like Tom in the movie, looking for the cure for cancer, but finding something much bigger without actually knowing what he's discovered. Yeah. These astronomers, who were working for Bell Labs, had a special radio antenna in New Jersey, I think it was, that was supposed to find some gas out in space. I don't know what it was, nitrogen or something. Uh-huh. Um, but they were picking up a huge amount of static noise, almost like a uh, you know, a bad signal-to-noise ratio when you're, when you're doing audio, noise, uh-huh. high noise floor, let's say. Yeah. Um, that was getting in the way of the readings that they were supposed to be taking. So, um, yeah, big problem. They did everything they could to try and get rid of this interference, um, including getting rid of pigeons that were nesting inside the antenna. Oh, my gosh. Um, and you can actually see um, pictures of that. Um, I'm not sure if there's video online, but you can definitely go online and, and look at pictures. Eventually, they realized with the help of other scientists that um, what they found wasn't just some noise ruining their experiments. Um but it was actually the echo of the birth of the universe. Whoa. Um, So like a thermal fingerprint that was predicted to exist about 15 years prior, um, that is to say if the idea of the Big Bang was correct, which has since been proven to be. Um, So it was all predicted. um, And these are the scientists helped um, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson um, understand what had happened. And they won the Nobel Prize, even though they needed the help to understand it. But... um, Basically, this is the sound of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is um, the CMB, um, that confirms our kind of limited human understanding of how we came to be 13.7 billion years ago. And if our eyes could see like a camera could, we'd be able to look all around us and see this amazing glow in every direction. Um, But then perhaps we wouldn't be able to see other things like the stars and the Orion Nebula with our own eyes. So in the end, the darkness keeps us looking up. Wow. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson's got to run for his money here, Matt. Neil, if you're listening and you want to come join us on Netflix and Skill, be my guest, literally. We would love to have you. And that's all for The Fountain. See you again next time. Thank you guys very much. This is Way to Be signing off. Have a lovely evening. Today's episode was written by Matt McGuinness and Brandon Wade with thanks to Royal Holloway University, London. Engineered and produced by Matthew McGuinness. Music by Vast, inspired by Philip K. Dick. Search Facebook for Vast Electronica, with an A at the end. Stay tuned for more.